We've been lied to. Communication is not the key to every great relationship. Communication is not the key to every great relationship. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to lead a mission trip of high school students from my home church in Houston to Mexico City. And we went to Mexico City, and our pastor's son, Ben Young, who's preached here before, was kind of a missionary in residence from our church in Houston to this church in Mexico City for a few months. And so he was already down there when we got down there and had really kind of, kind of in, integrated into the culture of Mexico City. He had a really keen grasp of the Spanish language. He even got really good at driving in Mexico City. How many of you have ever been on the streets of Mexico City before? This is a spiritual experience. Driving through Mexico City will bring you closer to God. And Ben had gotten really good at it. And what we would do is we, we stayed in, in host homes of members of this church in Mexico City. We'd gather at the church early every morning and then drive about an hour and 15 minutes out into the, the burbs, if you will, to government-sponsored housing projects outside of Mexico City where we would serve and work throughout the day and then come back in. Well, one morning when we were meeting at the church, one of the high school girls in our group became violently ill. We didn't know what was wrong with her. She was having excruciating abdominal pain, couldn't keep any food down. And since Ben was kind of our boots on the ground guy, he volunteered to go to the pharmacia and get the meds that she would need. He had a little bit you know, better command of Spanish than any of us on the trip. And then he volunteered me to go with him. So we got in the church van and ran the gauntlet of the streets of Mexico City to the pharmacy, and we walked in the door and began using our limited Espanol to communicate with the pharmacist the symptoms of this girl back at the church. We were, and, and, and when I say limited, I mean muy poquito. It was like, uh, el, la señorita tiene mucho dolor en el estómago. I mean, it was... It wasn't quite that bad, but it was close. And, and the poor pharmacist, trying to understand our broken Spanish, he just looked at us, and then finally you saw a light go on in his eyes. He went, oh, and he disappeared behind the door to the stock room behind him. And Ben and I sat there and looked at each other like, I think we got through. I think we're, this is going. And all of a sudden he came back out from the stock room holding a bag, and he said, this this is what you want. Ben and I grabbed the bag, paid the pesos, got back in the van, ran the gauntlet of the streets of Mexico City, got back to the church and triumphantly handed the bag to the woman sponsor of our trip who was helping this poor high school girl in so much pain. And Ben and I just kind of sat there and thought, man, this, this is it. We, we did it, man. And the, the woman who was our sponsor with us on this trip reached into the bag and she pulled out the meds that we had brought back, and she said, this is not going to work. And Ben and I were like, what do you, what do you mean this is not going to work? Man, we were, we communicated. We were in Espanol, baby. And she goes, you brought back birth control pills. <laughs> I turned to the girl in pain. I said, please don't tell your parents. <laughs> I'm telling you, I didn't say that. It was an honest mistake on our part. We had communicated, but we had not in any way, shape, or form achieved understanding. 
Communication is not the key to a great relationship. Understanding is the key to a great relationship. When it comes to the Christian faith, what, what it means to live in a relationship with God, one of the most foundational, essential aspects of this relationship remains also one of the most misunderstood. Prayer. Prayer is the process in the Christian life by which we not only communicate with God, we, we share our heart with him, we hear from him, I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit, but it's the process by which we really and truly begin to understand, to know God, who he is and what he wants in and through our lives. And, and it's in this thing called prayer that this relationship with God reaches new levels of, of intimacy, of power, of impact in the world. And it's, it's so essential, but as I said, so misunderstood by so many of us. I think that's why this is the perfect thing for us to take up in this series that we're continuing today, asking for a friend. Because I know so many of us as followers of Christ don't really understand what prayer is, how it works, in our own lives, much less to be able to explain it to somebody else who may be questioning, who, who maybe have some questions or be even a little bit skeptical about it. So as I was preparing and, and praying through this message and thinking about how to, how to get at this, not just to explain it, but in my life, I, I, thought, about, I thought about nuclear fusion. I thought about nuclear fusion. And I don't want to go all Sheldon Cooper on you, but for just a split second, some of you will get that on the way home. Think about fusion of subatomic particles. That's, I went to the, the source on, on all information, which is Wikipedia. And if it's, if it's in Wikipedia, you know it's true. But this is what Wikipedia says about fusion in nuclear physics and chemistry. Nuclear fusion is a reaction in which two or more atomic nuclei are combined to form one or more different atomic nuclei and subatomic particles. The difference in mass between the reactants and the products is manifested as either the release or the absorption of energy. That's prayer. It is the combination of two nuclei, God and us, that results in either the absorption of power the power of God into our lives, or the release of power. Fusion is the best way that I can think of to describe what happens when we pray. Prayer is the fusion. I want you to think about, everybody do this. Everybody kind of take both hands and just do like that. That's, that's fusion. Prayer is the fusion of God's authority and our activity. That's what, that's what prayer really is. It's the fusion of the authority of God, the one who created us, who made us, who made everything from the cosmos to the atoms. He made it all. And in his authority, he chooses to connect with you and me and to connect his authority to our activity so that, that what we do in this world, what we do in this life, really 
and truly matters, not just as it impacts our today, but because of the authority of God, it has the potential kinetic energy to impact every part of the world eternally. That's a staggering concept. So, so prayer is this idea that there is an intersection. There's this, this fusion between God's authority and our activity, but it, it raises the question, how do we get there? I, I think the question for asking for a friend is, does prayer really work? Or, or maybe, maybe how does prayer really work? That those are really valid questions, and in order to explain it, I think the best way for us to get at this is to go to what Jesus himself said. If you've got your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter number 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is preaching the most famous sermon ever heard, the Sermon on the Mount. And this mount, archaeologists and historians have discovered, is right there overlooking the Sea of Galilee. You can go to the very spot within a few hundred yards of where Jesus actually spoke the Sermon on the Mount. It's an amazing thing. And the great thing about this particular spot in Israel is that it hasn't been hyper-developed. There are a couple of churches on the hillsides overlooking the Sea of Galilee, but the terrain and the, the landscape is largely the same as it was on the day Jesus delivered this sermon. But in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us what's referred to as the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer. And he tells us this is how you're supposed to pray. But in this model prayer, he shows us not only how to pray, he shows us how prayer works, what, what actually happens when we actually pray. Now, before we get into it, I, I think, I would love to just ask you a question. This is, this is family, so you can do this in here. If you're watching online, you're family too. But how many of us, wish we understood prayer better than we do. I'm just curious. And if you don't, that's okay, but I'm just curious. How many of us wish we understood it better than we actually do? I've noticed in my own life, the, the better I get at prayer, the, the more my prayer life develops, it's, 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 it's kind of like Ritz crackers. How many of y'all like Ritz crackers? My wife, Julie, had surgery this summer and, and is doing great. She's back about 110%. But, but while she was recovering from surgery, she had to eat a very bland diet. And so she ate a lot of crackers. And so we had Ritz crackers in our house all summer. And we usually don't eat that kind of stuff. It's processed. It's blah, 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 blah. I ate enough Ritz crackers this summer to float a battleship. I, I can't tell you. I, I love Ritz crackers so much. And if you just happen to have some smoked Gouda. <laughs> oh. But here's the thing I noticed about Ritz crackers. You don't eat one. Like I would tell myself, these are for Julie. I'm just going to have one. Oh, that was really good. Two's not that big a deal. If you've had one, two. you just keep going on the Ritz crackers. This is prayer. The more you taste of who God is through prayer, the more you want. You, 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 can't, you can't get enough. And the more I learn about prayer, the more I learn I have to learn. Does that make sense? 
And so I think while the subject matter is probably familiar to all of us, a deep awareness, a deep understanding of how this operates, I think for most of us remains largely elusive. And so what I want to do in the time that we have here today is is hopefully kind of whet your appetite for more prayer. I, I want to challenge you. I want to give you a taste of it so that you go and get some of your own, so that you make it a part, not just of what happens on Sunday, but a part of your life day in and day out. So, so what is it that happens when we pray? This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. And, and this is out of the New International Version. I, I went back to a little bit older version because I think it's more familiar to us. But these are the words of Jesus. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the first thing out of the barrel is our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying here, first of all, articulate God's authority. Articulate God's authority. If prayer is the fusion of his authority and our activity, then articulate it. Our Father who is in heaven, he, he is, that, as we say around here quite a bit, that means he is God and I am not. That's a great reminder every day of our lives to, to articulate that and to say, you are God. You are, you are in heaven. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It, it's, it's your store, God. <laughs> I mean, this, this day is yours. My life is yours. This world is yours. You are God, and I am not. Our Father who is in heaven. You articulate the authority of God. But there's a second thing that's going on in that opening salvo that Jesus gives us as an example. Yes, we articulate the authority of God, but don't miss what he says as we authenticate our ID. When I say our Father, my Father who is in heaven, that's authenticating my identity as a child of God. And so, yes, I recognize, I, I articulate the authority of God, but I'm also authenticating my identity, and I'm saying I'm yours. I, I have value, I have meaning, I have hope. I have purpose because I am a child of God. Tell your neighbor like you mean it with a smile on your face. You're a child of God. Now, is that staggering? I will never forget, early in our ministry, Julie and I were serving in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and our pastor, Ed Young, has, has four amazing kids, and his oldest, Lee Beth, was very, very young. And the church, and as, you know, PKs, you get comfortable at church real quick. And I'll never forget one Sunday morning, we were setting up in the lobby of the Irving Art Center where we used to have church, and somebody brought in the, the donuts that we would bring in for hospitality, you know, to make people feel at home because donuts are spiritual. And I'll never forget Lee Beth at, at a very, very young age walking through. Now, before I tell you this story, has anybody ever been embarrassed by your children? Can I just see a show of hands? If your children have, okay, good. Okay, I just want to point that out before I finish the story. Lee Beth saw the donuts going over to where they were going to be displayed, and she went through the lobby saying, 
Step aside, pastor's child, pastor's child, coming to get the donuts. Well, I know Ed and Lisa. I, Julie, was. we knew that that was not how they were brought up in that home. And sure enough, Lisa, Ed's wife, addressed the issue with Lee Beth and helped her to understand that leaders eat last and you will have donuts maybe by the time Jesus comes back. But <laughs> Lee Beth had appropriated some authority as the pastor's daughter that wasn't hers. But when you understand your identity in Christ, when you understand that you are a child of God, that all of a sudden infuses your prayer with so much more power because now all of a sudden you're communicating with your father who loves you, who has called you, who has empowered you. And, and, and it's, it's a new game. You're not, going, you're not doing prayer because you have to check off something on your religious to-do list. You're, you're talking to your dad. You're talking to the one who loves you, our father who is in heaven. You've authenticated your ID. Number three, you recalibrate. Let me put it this way. I recalibrate my priorities. I recalibrate my priorities in prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, that's my priority today, to, to move your kingdom forward, starting with the closest relationships that I have. I, I'm going to represent you, the king, well in everything that I do, in the conversations that I have, in the way that I encourage people, in the way that I receive encouragement or accountability, your kingdom come, your will be done. I, I, and and I, I chose that word recalibrate really, really deliberately. I need my priorities recalibrated on the regular. Anybody else? Does anybody, I'm just curious, how many of us in the room never have to think about priorities ever again? Man, I would love to anoint you the new pastor of Lake Hills Church if that's you. I think priorities are always a work in progress we, because there's always new demands for our time, attention, money, heart that, that require us to recalibrate those priorities. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, that, that recalibrates that. Jesus said something really important also, right after giving us this example, and I think we talk about this not enough. Jesus talked about fasting, about setting aside our physical wants and needs to focus on our spiritual wants and needs. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. He says, now, when you fast, so we, we ought to fast with some regularity. He said, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. Don't, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I'd, be, I'd be more attentive in this meeting, but I'm, I'm fasting. I, I know, I, I am that spiritual. Jesus said, don't do that. Look at what he says, I love this. I tell you the truth, that's the only reward they will receive. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. I think we could say also brush your teeth. <laughs> then 
no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. I need to do a better job of fasting. I want to encourage you as the church. When you face a massive decision, when you face a little decision, try fasting. Let me tell you a secret. The vast majority of us, if we don't eat for 24 hours, most of us will live. And I'm, I'm kind of being funny. If you have a, a physical issue or a, a medical condition, talk to your physician before doing this. But maybe you could fast from something else. Maybe if you need food for, for blood sugar levels or whatever the case might be, there are other things we can fast from. But it's, it's setting aside those earthly temporary needs to focus on the spiritual, heavenly, eternal needs. Fasting is a great thing. You got a problem in your marriage? Fast. You, you thinking about a career shift or a move? Fast. And, and it's amazing when you, when you feel that little hunger pang or you miss whatever it is that you've given up and you instead focus your attention on God and, and what he's trying to teach you, where he's trying to lead you, you will be blown away by what God does when you fast. I just, and I've, I need to do a better job of teaching this. I need to do a better job of encouraging you to do this. But fasting is huge, huge. And it, again, it helps to recalibrate our priorities. Number four, prayer works because it regulates my anxiety. It regulates my anxiety. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Philippians chapter 4, the Bible says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace. God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Prayer ought to be our first move when we're anxious, when we, when we get stressed. It's unbelievable how coming back, centering my life on the personality, the character, the promises of God may not change the situation that's stressing me out, but it will absolutely regulate my anxiety about the situation. I just, I, I think this is so timely in the world that you and I live in. I think there are a lot of us, a lot of us, who try everything else in the world except a relationship with Christ to regulate our anxiety. And I fully understand that there are situations where counseling is necessary. Sometimes there are situations where medication is necessary. I'm not minimizing those things. But I'm saying those aren't the primary. They are not to be the first move. Instead, we go to God. Tell, tell God what you're anxious about. Here, here's what I've noticed. 
I shared this with our high school and middle school students this past week. When I stress, and I, and I, I do for the record, this is not a hypothetical. When I stress, I stress about usually things that haven't happened yet. It, it's, it's about things that might happen, usually, the vast majority of usually. But when I focus instead on what I know to be true already, what is real, when that happens, I'm able to kind of catch my breath, sometimes literally, and, and focus on the task at hand and what needs to be done and can be done and fuses my activity with the authority of God. And then the peace of God, which exceeds our understanding, actually begins to guard my heart and my mind as I live in Christ Jesus. The bottom line is, this stuff works. This, this, this is good stuff right here. And, and I've seen it work. I know that it works. And even still, I can get wrapped around the axle of anxiety. But, but prayer regulates my anxiety. Number five, prayer eliminates our guilt. When I pray to God, I have the opportunity in Christ by his authority, to eliminate all guilt. Earlier in the service, when we celebrated communion together as a church and we had that time of confession, because of who Jesus is, because of what he did on the cross, I can confess my sins openly and freely. I don't have anything to hide. He knows it all anyway. But then I know because of his amazing grace that all guilt is erased. It, it is removed God says, I will remember their sin no more. I will remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. What, a, what a, an amazing picture and promise. Forgive us our debts. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Everybody say all. 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 Like Whatever you're thinking about right now from college that you don't want anybody to know about, that's included in all. All. Whatever you're thinking about from Saturday night that you don't want anybody to think about, all. All. It eliminates our guilt. He says, forgive us our debts, but then number six. Number six is eradicate my bitterness eradicate my bitterness like 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 a cancer patient radiate it out of my life what does he say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors sometimes we need to pray to help us forgive people who have done us wrong sometimes we have to do it more than once there's this great moment in the life of Jesus when Peter Needless to say, it was Peter spoke up. He said, Father, Lord, how many times should we forgive people who do us wrong? Seven times? You talk about a teacher's pet. Peter, would it be seven? I mean, this was like radical stuff. And Jesus looked at him and he said, close, 70 times seven. Whoa. Sometimes we, we have to re-forgive. 
Now, for the record, Jesus is not saying 490 times, forgive, and then you don't have to anymore. He, he, was, he was using a little hyperbole to make a spiritual point. That, that in prayer, we have the opportunity to eradicate all bitterness from our lives. You see, a lot of times we think about forgiveness for other people as something we're giving to them, and because they've wronged us, we're, we're going to withhold it. Mm-mm. I'm not giving them forgiveness. You see what they did to me? Chump. That's the spiritual language we use. But forgiveness actually, truthfully, is a gift we give ourselves. Forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person or what they've done. Forgiveness is choosing to not hold on to bitterness. And you're kidding yourself if you think that bitterness won't infect your other relationships. That it won't infect your relationship with God. God, forgive us our debts to you as we forgive our debtors. Jesus pushed this thought even further when he said, if you don't forgive people who have done you wrong, God in heaven won't forgive you. That puts a pretty fine point on it, doesn't it? Why would God give us something that we're not going to give to other people? So eradicate that bitterness through prayer. If you start to feel like, man, I would love to just kind of keep that scoreboard in my mind and in my, just pray about that. God, there it is again. (laughs) I would love to get some revenge. I would love for them to understand how wrong they were. Pray that out. Eradicate that bitterness. Number seven, mitigate my temptation. How many of us in the last week were tempted in, to do something that you know was wrong? Just if you know you were tempted to do something wrong. There are a lot of liars in here. I don't know if you know that. God, lead us not into temptation. It doesn't mean that God tempts us. The book of James tells us God never tempts anybody. He will allow us to be tempted, but it means God Don't let us fall into temptation. Guard me, protect me spiritually from the temptations that you know I'm not ready to handle. Because the Bible also tells us that he will always, say always. Always. Always provide a way out. If you're tempted, there is a way out. If you're tempted, there is a way out. You don't get to fight, well, devil made me do it. (laughs) Just the way I was made, sorry, no. That's called a cop-out. Mitigate that temptation. Pray. As you pray to God, God, lead us not into temptation. Lead me not into temptation. Help me guard my heart and my mind today and mitigate that temptation. Now, very, very quickly, I want to show you the most important prayer tools you will ever use. It's a notebook and a pen. I went to seminary. I have a master's in theology, so I use a moleskin. That's very spiritual. If you use a moleskin, that's like next level. You can, you can use a 99-cent spiral from HEB. You, but I cannot strongly encourage you enough, use... Write down your prayers. Starting today, 
don't, don't treat this like a diet. You know, I'm starting on Monday morning. I'm doing the thing, man. No. Today, start writing your prayers. This is, this is my new prayer journal. That's always fun when you finish your prayer journal. You know, like when you fill a hole, see, this is empty. I started this one two years ago. I'm just kidding. I started this one just very recently. But when you fill one of these puppies and you save it, and then you can go back and look at God's faithfulness, man, you, whoo. But, but you pray, and I encourage you to use the, the word pray, just P-R-A-Y. And I know some of you have heard this a lot, but I also know a lot of us don't use it a lot. So I, I'm, I want to... Man, again, I want, you, I want you to taste the Ritz cracker of prayer. P-R-A-Y. Give me a P. P. Praise. You start with praise. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Praise. Tell God why you think he's so awesome. My wife, Julie, will do that every now and then. She'll be like, tell me three reasons you love me, and they can't be the same three from the last time. Keep a husband on his toes, Jack. The thing about God is we never run out of things to love him for. Again, the more we pray, the more we learn of God, the more there is to worship him for. So praise. R, give me an R. R. Repent. Repent. Name your sins one by one. I will tell you this. I don't write my sins down in the journal. I don't know where this could end up after I'm dead. (laughs) But I do say, Holy Spirit, lead me in confession. Flush my heart out of all of the junk and replace it with your presence, repent. Name your sins one by one. God, I confess my my anger or or whatever it might be. Repent. A, give me an A. A. Ask. Ask. Tell God what you want. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. You have not because you ask not. Tell God what you want okay he wants to know and then why give me a why Why? yield yield I think this is where most of us get tripped up I think being willing to yield our hearts and our lives and our minds and our mouths God. Remember, the whole thing about prayer is fusion. It's the fusion of God's authority in our activity. And so we yield to his authority. We yield in this day, in this moment. But here's the amazing thing about yielding to God. It always works best. So many times that's the thing we resist the most is yielding to God. When if we would just yield and surrender our lives and our hearts and our minds and our mouths and our relationships and our jobs and everything, if we would just surrender those things, God would say, now, watch what I'm going to do. Watch, watch the power that is released in and through your life. 
you, you, don't, you don't even know what I got in store for you. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And so that's why we connect with him. That's why the fusion is so important. If you're here today and you've never yielded your life to Jesus, we want to invite you to do that. Not just in, in praying but in living in a relationship with him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you want to step into a relationship with Christ that is lived out, then we invite you to pray just right where you're sitting. Just pray, talk to God silently and say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, all of it. And in your grace and forgiveness, I ask you to eradicate all of my guilt. Jesus, you are God and I am not. And so I will follow you from this moment forward. Lord, I give you my life. Pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a second, just for a moment. Because if, that, if you just prayed that prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. And you're surrounded by people who want to help. You want to help with what's next. And so I want to ask you to do just two things. Number one, right now, if that was your prayer, I want to ask you to start filling out the connect card that's in the program. Just right where you are, quietly start filling that card out. You'll notice right underneath the contact information is a place to indicate, I committed my life to Christ this week. And then once you finish that card, can tear it off along the perforation there on the fold and hand it to one of our ushers when we dismiss in just a moment. The second thing I want to ask you to do, if you would, just very briefly, as our heads are bowed for another second, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a second. Your hand in the air is a physical statement of that spiritual commitment that you just made. And it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal in your life. It's a big deal in our life as a church family. And so as a family, you can put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and celebrate with you and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.